enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. podcast is going to touch on a couple observable natural phenomena that you can see, depending on where you are in the world. <laughs> I'm sorry there's that caveat, but it's true. The observable universe is dependent on where you're observing from. I got a request from my girl Zoe to talk about auroras, but stay tuned even if you aren't living close to the Earth's poles. There are two events coming up in August that I want to prepare you for. One, you can see on a clear night if the constellation Perseus is visible and the moon is dim. And the other one is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for folks living in North America. So, I mentioned auroras when I was talking about planets in our last episode, episode 8. Any planet with a magnetic field and an atmosphere will probably display auroras. Jupiter's are the only auroras more intense than Earth's. What they look like to observers depends on how poetic you want to get. Observer descriptions note how the massive sheets of light take, quote, different forms, wavering, many colors diffusing and changing, sometimes far away, sometimes filling the heavens around and above, plunging great dropping spears and sheets of color earthward towards your very head, as though a great hand were dropping color like burning oil. Some observers also note that there are sounds that auroras generate, from, quote, whistling crackling noises, to a rustling, quote, like running one's thumb and forefinger down a silk scarf. Auroras appear in the northern and southern hemispheres, mainly within the Arctic Circle and most often around the equinoxes. The aurora borealis in the northern hemisphere and the aurora australis in the southern hemisphere are the most well-known forms that auroras take. They appear around the Great Lakes a few times every year, but it's rare that they'll spread any further down towards the equator. Auroras most often swirl between 50 and 200 miles above the Earth's surface, caused by a flood of particles from the sun reacting with the atoms and ions in the atmosphere to generate photons, the particles that make up light. Different elements will burn at different colors, so you get different color displays. Nitrogen will make purple and violet, oxygen will generate green and red light, and so on. Scientists aren't positive why auroras happen or when they will happen, though they can assume that there will be more auroras during times when the sun has a higher activity and greater emissions of cosmic rays. Some NASA spacecraft sent to investigate the source of auroras in 2007 found that auroras tend to follow breaks in the magnetic field. There are also a couple cool astronomical events to see coming up in August that I wanted to talk to you about in this podcast. I'm not a great practical astronomer, as you can tell from my previous podcasts. Um, I'm more interested in the history and discoveries than looking at and cataloging stars myself. But there is an event every year that happens between August 11th and 13th, called the Perseid Meteor Shower. I have a very 
dreamlike memory of being woken up at like 2 a.m. to sit outside in Colorado, high up, because Denver is the Mile High City and we were in the mountains, so we were even higher up. The sky was weirdly bright blue, even though the moon was low. There was a greenish tint to it at the horizon that faded to dark blue above us. We sat there for a long time before any sparks of light started appearing. They streaked across the sky for just seconds, burning up in our atmosphere. Sometimes they were minutes apart. Sometimes they came in clumps, just a ton of them streaking down. I got excited about every single one of those meteors that I saw. The Perseids look like they come from the constellation Perseus, hence their name. Fun fact, uh, Perseus is a hero from Greek mythology who was the son of Zeus because Zeus visited his mother, the mortal woman Danae, disguised as a shower of gold, so the shower of meteors is particularly appropriate. (laughs) The Perseids occur when the Earth's orbit crosses the orbit of comet Swift-Tuttle, Astronomers Lewis Swift and Horace Parnell Tuttle independently discovered the comet in July of 1862, and this is the month when the Earth first enters Comet Swift-Tuttle's orbit. There are lots of debris around the comet, but it takes until the first week of August for the Earth to really get into the thick of the space detritus. These fragments of the comet Swift-Tuttle end up crashing into Earth's atmosphere at about 130,000 miles per hour. Comet Swift-Tuttle's orbit takes it outside the orbit of Pluto when it's furthest from the Sun, so the Perseids won't last forever. But since it takes the comet 133 years to orbit the Sun, we'll have it for quite a while yet. It reached its perihelion, or the closest its orbit ever takes it to the Sun, way back in December 1992, which, in a very sweet coincidence, is the year I was born. Whenever the comet gets that close to the Sun, The sun's heat softens up the ices in the comet and ensures that it releases fresh comet material into its orbital stream. But the Perseids are an event that happens every year, at least for as long as Comet Swift-Tuttle stays close to the sun. There's also an August astronomical event that's much, much rarer, and I want to make sure that you know about it before it happens so you can prepare accordingly. On Monday, August 21st, 2017, all of North America, from coast to coast, will get to experience a solar eclipse, beginning on the west coast at around 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The moon will completely cover the sun between 10.15 and 10.30 a.m. before the moon moves on. But that's only in Oregon. I can't speak to what times other states will see the eclipse. The places where folks will see the moon totally cover the sun are on what's called the Path of Totality. The path is about 60 miles wide and moves from Oregon to Georgia. This path will pass through parts of Idaho, Wyoming, Nebraska, Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, and South Carolina before it skims Georgia's coast and ends in the Pacific Ocean, pretty close to Africa, actually. My city is right on the edge of the path of totality, and I don't have travel plans because I'll have work that day, so I won't see a total eclipse. 99% of an eclipse is plenty for me, though, and right now Oregon is predicting a complete dead stop to all traffic on the I-5 that day. I'm going to keep my head down, except when the actual event happens, and stay off the roads as much as I can. And I need to get eclipse glasses. Uh, Sunglasses won't do the trick, and my eyes are shitty enough as it is. My astronomy professor actually warned us how the astronomical genius Isaac Newton blinded himself for a week after seeing how long he could stare at the sun. 
According to the Lunar and Planetary Institute, public libraries across the United States are going to be distributing free eclipse glasses. So please grab some if you want to look at the eclipse. Even if you aren't in one of those 11 states I mentioned, you'll still be able to see the eclipse if you're in North America. I just want to tell you, even if you're in Alaska and Hawaii, there's an eclipse for you. It just won't be a total eclipse. And there are a ton of streaming services and apps and all this fun, cool stuff out there that's going to capture the eclipse. So you should definitely keep your eyes on the sky or on another part of the sky via your computer or phone or whatever on August 21st. Humans have witnessed eclipses for a long, long time. The word eclipse comes from the Greek word for abandonment or forsaking, and all of the other words for eclipse kind of revolve around the same idea, that it's a bad thing. Along with auroras, comets, and meteor showers, eclipses were described with a Greek word that meant the stars were aligned against you, and that word was disastra. We have a few records of eclipses in literature and uh, other cultures' astronomical records, but as NASA's website says, some of those may be apocryphal, meaning they may just not be true, or they may not have taken place during the time that someone said it did. They just heard about it and wrote it down because it sounded really poetic and cool. There's one eclipse mentioned in a Chinese reference called the Chu King that claims there was an eclipse on October 22nd in either 2136 or 2138 BCE. The Chinese government put people in charge of tracking the sun and moon's movement to predict eclipses. It was important for the emperor to be informed about eclipses because he would have to assemble the army and have them make a big racket to scare off the dragon that was eating the sun. In Chinese, the word for eclipse is rishi, literally sun eat, and it connotes being eaten away. These tactics to scare away the dragon always worked and the sun came back, which is super great. But during the eclipse in either 2136 or 2138, the people working as the state astronomers, or closer to astrologers since their job was to use observations of the heavens to predict major global events, these were two men named Ho and Hai, who are now known as the Drunk Astronomers. They failed to predict an eclipse due to their intoxication, and they were beheaded. The Babylonians were the first to discover that solar eclipses follow a pattern, and they would hide their king below ground to keep him from ill luck and bad omens, but they were one of the few civilizations that ever developed a schedule for eclipses. There are references to eclipses in the Bible, like the line, quote, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight, which is from uh, Amos 8-9. There's references to eclipses from the Greeks in poems and histories. The Roman writer and astrologer Julius Firmicus Maternus was the first to report solar prominences, which are big loops of plasma that shoot out of the sun's surface and can only be observed when the bright disk of the sun is hidden. He saw them during an eclipse in 334 CE. The Greek philosopher Plutarch described the corona of the sun during an eclipse in 71 CE when he wrote, quote, Even if the moon, however, does sometimes cover the sun entirely, the eclipse does not have duration or extension, but a kind of light is visible around the rim which keeps the shadow from being profound and absolute. It wasn't until the solar eclipse of 1724 that the Spanish astronomer José Joaquín de Ferrer gave this phenomenon its name after viewing a total solar eclipse from Kinderhook, New York. 
Corona is Latin for crown, and the sun's corona is the thin outer atmosphere of the celestial body. De Ferrer correctly surmised that the corona was part of the sun rather than part of the moon. Another historical eclipse of note helped to prove Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. In 1916, Einstein published the general theory of relativity. In it, he says space is curved by the influence of the gravity of any body that has mass. I talked about this a bit in the second podcast about cosmology, with the whole rubber sheet warping space-time, big bodies warping that. You remember. To prove Einstein's theory, astrophysicist Arthur Eddington proposed that observers photograph the sun during an upcoming solar eclipse to see if the sun's gravity made any stars visible that would not normally be seen. Sure enough, during a 1919 eclipse, two teams of astronomers took photographs that showed conclusively that gravity warps space. Eddington went on a mission in Brazil to prove it, while an American expedition headed by William Wallace Campbell and Robert Trumpler conducted their own confirmation in Australia. It's important for astronomers around the world to make close observations during an eclipse because solar eclipses are pretty rare. There are lunar eclipses and solar eclipses. The one coming up is a solar eclipse, which is when the sun, moon, and earth all line up, with the moon in the middle blocking light from the sun to the earth. A lunar eclipse is when the earth's shadow blocks out the sunlight that is coming from the sun to the moon, so the order in that alignment is sun, earth, moon. This type of three-body alignment is called syzygy, spelled S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, which is a really good word to use in hangman games if you're an asshole. I've won with it before. (laughs) There are a few types of solar eclipses. In a total eclipse, which is the kind that's coming up in August, the new moon is large enough in the sky that it will completely cover the sun. This means the moon is at its perigee, which is the point where the moon is closest to Earth. Now, if you're listening pretty carefully, you might notice that I called the point closest to Earth the moon's perigee, But I said earlier, back when I was talking about Comet Swift-Tuttle's approach of the sun, that this object's closest point to the sun was called its perihelion. The two words help differentiate between an object close to the sun, which has a perihelion from the word helios, meaning sun, and an object that's close to Earth, which has a perigee. Some fun linguistics there for you. You may think, though, that since there's a word for when an object is closest to the sun, there will also be a word for when its orbit takes it furthest from the sun. That's its aphelion. When the moon is at its furthest possible point from Earth, it's at its apogee. During an eclipse, when the moon's orbit takes it too far out from Earth and it appears smaller, it can't completely cover the sun. This is an annular eclipse because the bright ring of the sun shining around the body of the moon is called an annulus. The last kind of eclipse I'll mention is a partial eclipse, and it's exactly what it sounds like, when the sun and moon and earth aren't in complete alignment, so the moon only partially blocks the sun. It takes well over 90% of the moon covering the sun to notice any darkening effect of the sun's light, and even at 99% coverage, which is what I'll see, it won't be any darker than twilight. You'll still see the moon's shadow against the sun, though. It'll just be the moon's penumbra, or the edge of its shadow, rather than the umbra, which is the heart of the shadow and what people will see during a total eclipse. So, partial eclipses are exactly what they sound like. Annular eclipses are when the moon's too close to Earth and appears too small to completely cover the sun during an eclipse. And total eclipses are exactly what they sound like. (laughs) Incidentally, there's been a lot of media made about eclipses. 
It's not surprising considering what an omen it looks like, how dramatic it all is. Because this is an auditory medium, though, I'd like to recommend that you check out the singer-songwriter Radical Faces project, Sun Moon Eclipse. It's an eerie video combined with three songs of his, and it's really beautiful, haunting, and, in my mind at least, soothing. There's a link in the show notes, but you can check it out at sunmooneclipse.com. That's sun and moon with two N's each and eclipse with two P's. All one word. Here's a sample of what uh, the song Eclipse sounds like. Espinac at NASA performed the calculations that they're using to predict solar eclipses. He actually has a website with a guide to eclipses if you're interested. It's at mystereclipse.com, and I for one trust him a whole lot since he's, you know, a retired astrophysicist hired by NASA, and because he's married an eclipse and took its name for legal reasons in order to get that website. <laughs> That's dedication. There's a whole webpage on NASA's website about the math of predicting eclipses, and Okay, I'm all right at math. I'm slow, but I get there. But I'm not going to explain to you about periodicity and nodes and where the moon needs to be in order to cause an eclipse because it stresses me out to see these words and numbers. I'm very sorry. <laughs> you can check the resource out at the website, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com if you really want to see it. I encourage you to if you like math and predictions. Go for it. What I will say may sound a bit familiar if you listen to episode 7 about the Antikythera mechanism. Eclipses come in cycles. There may be one, five, or six lunar months between any two successive solar eclipses, but the types of these eclipses will vary. There will be diverse syzygies, and these short periods don't work to predict future eclipses because they don't repeat in any recognizable pattern. Instead, you have to compare other factors. One simple eclipse repetition cycle relies on the orbital patterns of the moon and sun relative to each other. The moon must be in a new phase, which is when the face it has to turn towards Earth is dark. It must have the same longitude of its perigee and be in the same position in its orbit. An example of a similar moon cycle is a sorrow cycle, which I, again, mentioned in episode 7. This is a period of about 18 years, 11 days, and 8 hours. It was discovered by the Chaldean astronomers as an interval when lunar eclipses repeat, but it's applicable to solar eclipses as well. Any two eclipses separated by one sorrow cycle have similar characteristics, in that they occur with the moon at the same distance from Earth and at the same time of year, and it takes three sorrows periods for an eclipse to enter the same longitude as a previous eclipse. The name for the combination of three sorrows periods is exelegmos, which adds up to about 54 years and 34 days. The paths of the eclipse may shift north or south, depending on when in the year the eclipse is scheduled to take place. This is because the location of the eclipse depends on the tilt of the Earth towards or away from the Sun. A sorrow cycle eclipse doesn't last forever. 
It relies on three different kinds of month reckonings that don't always line up with each other. There are also orbital trends that are changing over time, like how the distance from Earth to the Sun is decreasing slowly. There are a couple publications that provide eclipse predictions through 2290. There's a numbering system in place to catalog specific sorrow cycles that the amateur astronomer George Vanderberg introduced in 1955 in his book Periodicity and the Variation of Solar and Lunar Eclipses. Vandenberg also investigated an INEX cycle of eclipses, which is 28 years and 345 days long. An INEX cycle will get you an eclipse that's visible in the opposite hemisphere. So if an eclipse happens in the northern hemisphere, one INEX cycle later there will be an eclipse visible in the southern hemisphere, though they will most likely be different types of eclipses. I have to give major props to Vandenberg for how much work he did on eclipse prediction. <laughs> NASA says he, quote, placed all 8,000 solar eclipses and Van Oppelzer's Canon der Fisternis into a very large two-dimensional matrix. Each sorrow series was arranged as a separate column containing every eclipse in chronological order. The individual sorrows columns were then staggered so that the horizontal rows each corresponded to different INEX series. This chart that he made basically looks like a really big BMI chart, if you can picture that. <laughs> or the times tables that you may have had to complete in elementary school. It's incredible. I don't understand it. It also makes it possible to predict lunar and solar eclipses that were outside the period that previous eclipse prediction records recovered. The formula derived from this chart in order to predict eclipses is still imperfect, but I always chalk that kind of imperfection up to the fact that astronomers are trying to predict a natural phenomenon using averages. We have computers now that use high-precision object triangulation of the sun and moon's movements to predict the dates and circumstances of eclipses. But I thought this ancient technique, which is still used in some capacity now, by the way, was super interesting. Computers do it now is a way less fun response to the question of how do we know when an eclipse will happen. It's not wrong, but it's not the whole story. That's all I can really say about eclipses, meteors, and auroras. I wanted to give plenty of warning to people who are interested in viewing this year's solar eclipse so you can make time for it. Maybe get your eclipse glasses from your local library, all that good stuff. It's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing, seeing an eclipse in the United States. The next one to appear in North America won't be until April 8th, 2024, and that one will come up from Mexico through the Midwest and Great Lakes region and up out of Quebec, which means that the West Coast and Alaska and Hawaii won't get to see as much of it. As a West Coaster, I am invested in seeing as much of the eclipse as possible. <laughs> so, be on the lookout for the Perseids August 11th through 13th, and get ready for a total solar eclipse on Monday, August 21st. I'm going to go on a trip to Iceland this week, and then I'm starting a new job that will have me working full-time, but I'm already beginning some research for a podcast about spectroscopy, since I've mentioned it at the end of just about every podcast so far. I'm still interested in learning more about space probes, um, and there's a book that I checked out about the transit of Venus, which is a phenomenon that I mentioned in the last episode about planets. If you think there are some other cool things that I could research, definitely let me know by sending me an ask on the Tumblr or tweeting at me at HD in the Void. Please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already, and rate the podcast if you like it, and maybe leave a review. 
Also, please recommend this podcast to friends who like astronomy, science, history, ancient linguistics lessons, badly explained math, and soothing voices. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it breaches my will. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to breach your whale too. Tune in on August 14th for the next episode and check out my sources, the music credits, my script, and a vocab list at all one word, fill the void, dash with dash space dot tumblr dot com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD signing off. <laughs>